this thing. It's just, oh, there I go. Ah. Oh, listen. Like a pop rock inside shell candy. I do not want to eat that. Hey, poet. Hello, you. I like your poem. You poet. We have time for one more poem. We have time for one more poem. We have time for one more poem. Apparently, I'm amazing. You didn't know that. Poetry Night rings through. All right, let's welcome Larry Chris to the microphone, everyone. Well, pay for the gas. Well, it's uh, been lovely to be up here um, and see familiar faces here in Bellingham. And, oh, I'm a, well, I guess I could put this okay. podium. Oops. Well, you got to be careful of this thing, huh? Okay. Um, well, I generally don't get nervous on stage. I just get nervous for the actual things I'm going to read, especially if I've not, never read them before. So um, this is a brand-new poem. I'm just going to get this one out of the way and uh, see where it goes and see how it lands. So, And, yeah, I've been looking forward to being in front of this backdrop for quite a while now. It's, I see I see it on, on Facebook, and so I get my... My Bellingham look, yes. <laughs> all right, so this is called Remembering Liberace. Maybe some of you don't remember him at all, but um, this will be news for you then. Remembering Liberace. Women adored him, but not like Clark Gable or Cary Grant. Before Cher and her over-the-top attire, long before Madonna, Lady Gaga, the twerker, or Versace, there was Liberace. Beside his Steinway... An urban train or jeweled cape draped over one shoulder. He was there to play piano, but it was all about his clothes. He never came out of the closet unless dressed to the nines. Shifting coyly in his gym-studded gold lame, he'd tell a joke or share something about his dear old mama, some deflecting folder all delivered in his smiling queenish drawl. They called him Bachelor, though women were not interested in him that way, as everyone could easily see he was screamingly fay. The 50s and 60s were precarious times for nefarious sorts such as he. Others sweated at Tennessee Williams or Truman Capote, a Paul Lynn or Charles Nelson Riley, Merv Griffin, and so many beside him. Liberacinous material proved Teflon to the flame. Women, with the Depression and war still in mind, couldn't get enough. Little stigma arose with regards to fur, and sure, they liked that he loved mother and played pretty songs, but it was his wardrobe they coveted. While Negroes rode in the back of buses and drank from fountains marked colored, kids in school hid beneath desks to survive the bomb, and wives orbited the home like Sputnik or Explorer One. 
Liberace preened obscenely like little Lord Fauntleroy, a threat to every red-blooded working man everywhere as they'd catch their wives and girlfriends drooling over the piano player's costumes. Liberace didn't troll male restrooms, rubbing his feet under the stalls, didn't stalk children's playgrounds or visit gay bars. He just tinkled his ivory, plunking out a little Rachmaninoff or Chopin or Flight of the Bumblebee with his typical flair as housewives across America diddled themselves, taken in by Mr. Wright and the light glimmering from his hurried, blurried fingers, smiling with a wink before another ad from our sponsor, something about floor wax having yellowed. Or perhaps a word about Jello. Yeah. All right, zombies are all the thing rage these days, so this is a zombie poem. Everybody's got to have a zombie poem. Zombie movies. It's all fun and games till someone eats your brains or you wake, he says, without coffee in the house. There had been zombie movies galore, along with a lack of visits to the store, resulting in this imbalanced dearth of waking sustenance. Having little to get up for, they sublimated best they could, but having gone twice already, this option was spent as well. Brains. Brains must have. And as there still wasn't any coffee, he had her again, pinned like a defrocked monarch, its wings flattened against the flannel sheets, gamey, stained, wrinkled with age, wrinkled like age. Brains, he barked, like it was an idea, like it was an idea at all. Hers were working overtime. I know where to find coffee, she said. Yes, he perked up. He had no ammo or brain. He hadn't even a hangover yet anyways. He had nothing except for her, trapped beneath his once virile self, now a hollow husk, coasting on last night's enchiladas, chili relleno, salt-rimmed margaritas, draining like reconstituted salsa, evaporating like dew, leaving him as weak as Samson, sporting a crew. Okay, he said, I will spare your brains if you... He couldn't finish. It was all too much. The day had just begun, but already existence bubbled over like boiling milk, hissing like a snake. He rolled off her like an overcooked wiener, like Superman wearing a kryptonite strap-on. Outside, rain battered the roof, amplifying traffic, chasing past this close, cramped scene. Promise me, his voice weak, like some goiter had commandeered his interior. Promise me... Yes, she said, seizing her chance, popping up from the bed, cheerful as a cadaver, her alabaster ass vanishing into the murk, that we'll make it to the store today. And, she queried, urging him to complete his thought, no more zombie movies, he groaned. <laughs> All right, well, I... I was asked about my uh, my literary influences, and this is a this got just got published. Never give up on your old poems. My uh, friend Bill Lindbergh, some of you know him. He lives down in Oregon now. He used to be up at Zippy's a lot, but um, anyway, he he published this poem. It's about it's older than many of the people in this room. Um, anyway, this is called "When Idols Call," and my idols have not changed. Uh, significantly, so this poem still makes sense to me. When idols call, I was in the kitchen when Bukowski appeared. He leaned in on the fridge, his gut straining against his trousers. You're nothing, he said. You can't write, can't fuck, and you barely qualify as a drunk. I had only wanted a beer and was not prepared for this. Anything else, I trembled. 
Yeah, you pussy, get me a beer. I opened the fridge, leaned in like I was going for two, brought my fist up and sucker punched him. He vomited, a hefty helping of phantasmal spew. You're dead, you old fuck, I said. Only Europe and illiterates think you're a genius. Poets and writers never even mentioned your passing. That's another thing, he gurgled. His large body sprawled across the floor. You subscribe to a lot of pussy magazines. <laughs> he vanished, leaving a stain on the linoleum. I heard a knock at the door. Henry Miller didn't wait for me to open it. He walked right in, through, wa right, walked right through the door with it still closed, asked if I had seen June. Yeah, I said, she followed May. A cigarette popped out from his large lips. He squinted through the smoke. You understand nothing about love or passion, he croaked. Then he whipped out his dick, daring me to do the same. Hey, I said, I may only be as well hung as Howard Stern. Who, he asked. Exactly, I continued. But I prefer typing with my fingers. Now put out that cigarette. Those jatans smell like singed toenails. He exhaled and disappeared inside his own cloud. I fanned the door back and forth. Having re-entered, Patrick O'Brien was sitting on my couch, sipping tea. Pinky extended. I say, he said, you can't create characters, don't know Latin, and in fact you barely even know who you are. Again, I was at a loss, so I got nasty. Hey, fuck you, you Irish wannabe limey freak. You only wanted to be Jack Aubrey's cabin boy. I slapped the teacup from his hand, placed old Pat in a headlock, nougied his dry white head, led him out the door. The yard was full of dead riders. Riders, riders everywhere. Not a good word to spare. There was Ernest and Ezra and F. Scott and Faulkner. Joyce was holding court with a bunch of dead Russians and a couple French. There was Mong and Oscar Wilde whispering with Proust. Kipling and Twain were arm wrestling as Huxley and P.G. Woodhouse cheered them on. Listen, you bastards, I said, tossing Patrick from the porch, finding my voice. Here's another none of you would recognize. Nobody reads any of you fuckers anymore except for me. And maybe I've read enough. So get out of my yard and stop trampling my narcissists. <laughs> I slammed the door, went upstairs, switched on my computer, wrote an incredible sentence pertaining to none of the above. Go to the book now, I think. I got a few of these back there for sale, if anybody's interested. Uh, yes, back right there. There's, uh, they're close to that. They're close to the, the nice lady at the tip jar. Okay, well, uh, Father's Day is coming up, so I got some father poems. And um, here's one. It's called Fight Lessons. Don't grip your thumbs. Don't hold them on top like that. Cross them over your knuckles. Keep your guard up. Think defense with your left. Offense with your right. Fake with your right. Strike with your left. Keep them guessing. Make them guess wrong. Don't stand flat-footed. Bend your knees. Launch from your legs. Don't get thrown off balance. Remember, attitude is everything. First strike, everything else. Hate your opponent. Look them in the eye. Hate them! For God's sakes, don't bite your tongue. Don't cry and don't fight dirty unless you know you can get away with it. A smart mouth will get you into it. A good stance could get you out of it. Cowardice will haunt you forever. Protect your nose.
You have such a pretty nose, just like your mother's. Never let your guard down and never give up. Keep your pretty nose pretty. Okay, I'll see you next week. I love you. On base drinking percentage. I'm uncertain as to whether baseball got me drinking or drinking drew me closer to baseball. I went from not drinking and playing to playing and drinking to drinking and watching to not playing at all. I played in several beer leagues. We played a lot, drank a lot, sometimes after, sometimes during. With beer ball, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you drink that matters. My father introduced me to the game drinking in his chair with me on the floor. He explained everything involved except for the crucial enhancement of drinking while watching, which I discovered by watching him watch it. He'd lob a white plastic baseball and I'd swing at it with a red plastic bat with a neighbor kid or two fielding. The frantic race between plum and apple tree and back with my dog chasing round, being by a ball as good as an out. I admire the game symmetry, try and recall whatever became of that glove I massaged with oil or that bottleneck bat I never quite grew large enough for. Dream of that which I can never return to and all that I have left behind, remembering Dad, where the beer cans flew and the hits kept coming. And I'll, uh, I'll retire the subject of Dad with this one. This is called No Santa. My father never told me there was no Santa. He told me of Satan, though, of hell and Dante's visit there. He told me about the atom bomb, how we had dropped two on Japan, how people were vaporized, leaving only a shadow, and that those were the lucky ones. He never took me to see Mary Poppins. Instead, we attended grainy black-and-white films with subtitles and no cartoons, where women's breasts generated little excitement. He read me Animal Farm, explaining it wasn't really about animals. He told me about Vietnam and how we were losing this war. We were losing this war the same way the Brits first lost to us. The present history makers, he said, don't know their history. He'd take me out at night, and we'd look up at the sky, and he'd say what we were seeing had already long since passed, and maybe somewhere... At that very moment, there was a father and son pointing our direction a million years this way or that. He never told me there was no Santa, but given the aforementioned, I put it together. And come Christmas, good or bad, I knew there'd be something under the tree, whether Santa brought it or Dad had left it behind. Uh, how am I doing time-wise? Three or four? Okay. Uh, this is, um, while you were gone. Oops. While you were gone, I slept on your side of the bed. I climbed the stairs backward. I stood on the porch and howled at an absent moon with your panties on. The red ones, which I then put neatly away. Bottles clustered like bowling pins, dishes piled like buildings. I took them down with terrorist finesse, a perfect strike. 
I kept the ball-peen hammer in the freezer. I chased squirrels from the yard. I consulted runes, rued the results. I scared ghosts from our pantry, got drunk three times, cried seventeen, ate black-eyed peas and gruel and bratwurst with honey mustard. I thought seventy-two immoral and lewd unlawful acts committing several without even trying. I masturbated using only my left hand. I bathed in mayonnaise. I found your diary and your dildo. I couldn't help myself. I read your dildo, but I did not insert your diary. Some things cannot be. Funny, with you gone, I feel I know you better than when you were here. Hurry back. I know too much about you already. (laughs) Finding it. It is a daily occurrence whenever I can't find something. I must ask for it, out loud even, to the woman I live with. Where's the sponge? Where are my keys? Have you seen the, or my stash, or my flask, or just about anything within this vast lexicon of misplaceable items? I can look for an eternity, but until I give voice to my hunt, I never find what I'm looking for. Having asked, however, I locate it immediately. She doesn't tell me where it is. She doesn't know any better than I do. It is enough to have asked. It works every time. I don't know what I did before her, but I'm glad she's here to help me find things and that I found her and that between us, this slim magic continues. All right. Goes out to her who is not here. Um... Okay, so uh, anyway, this book is in four different parts, and the last part is kind of about writing itself. And um, so I'll just read a couple from that, and I'll close with that. Um, This is very short. This is, I actually use this in a cover letter, and this is called Cover Letter. And they rejected the poems, and they uh, accepted the cover letter. So so I put that in this uh, collection. Um, Cover Letter. Here are some poems. I have read them in front of strangers. I have beaten them with sticks, the poems, that is. I have pummeled and abused and turned them on their heads, laughed at them and called them names. They can stand it no more, so here they are. There is nothing you can do to them that hasn't already been done except publish them. I hope they find refuge in your publication. If not, return them or rip them in shreds. Wipe your ass with them or light them on fire. Do both at once if you're up for the challenge. Send me a nice form letter telling me how you're inundated with thousands of nice poems, and I'll take care of these little bastards, and we'll kick their asses all over again. Okay. Um, I, um, I'll, I'll close with this one, I guess. Um, this, is, uh, this goes out to everyone in the room. This is called Poets. Look at all the horny, drunken poets. Poets in droves. A passel of poets writing and running up bar tabs and talking, always talking, one wonders, when they find time to write. So much to say and observe and 500 times that to read. And don't forget all the events and readings, hundreds of readings and open mics and book and magazine release parties and eulogies and memorials and workshops and happenings because things are always happening. And for a poet to write, they must be a part of what is just as what isn't. 
And it's good that poets lead such rich social lives because they earn almost no money and are a sensitive lot and perhaps a tad suicidal, though mostly in theory. They are prone to long walks in the rain, feeling things deeply, writing things down, lots of things down to get it right or just get at it at all. And they may be ugly or handsome or plain or pukey or rich or poor or tall or short or missing limbs or in some cases have extra parts and perhaps are both well hung and unsung. But either way, they are sensitive, deep feeling folk of the earth or city and they love and hate things deeply just as there are numerous things they revere and hold sacred like the written word as well as the sanctity of the apt phrase, particularly if they're the one to have uttered it. There is a funnel pyramid worth of poets to inspire and enthuse from here to Homer, writers who wrote before ink or text, just blood and time and memory, putting it out there to affect and infect, to make us see it like they do, to see anew, using our eyes as they did only through words, from epics to epigrams, from rhyming couplets to discordant free-ranging rants, to haiku minimalism with tricks or lack of punctuation because of love or lack of love, but always some wavering measurement in between, writing because they must, write whether they are dry or dripping wet, unleashing this torrent of infinite promise and failing in this, suffocating under its own weight, sealing it with their lives, this poetic ultimatum called life, this stuff they tell us, this thing we are. Thank you. Larry Christ, everyone. Let's keep it going. Again, 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 I'll tell you, tell you, listen. Oh, 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 yeah.